0: Hey everyone, Rabbi Sharon here. This sermon was given on Arab Juneteenth on Friday night, June 18th, marking for the first time the acknowledgement of Juneteenth as a national holiday in this country. The big idea here is only when we reckon honestly with the past can we be liberated from its grip. Juneteenth has to be more than a symbolic gesture. We have to not only remember slavery, but really work together to upend its legacy in America and together to build a truly just and equitable society in its place. This part of the story begins on December 31st, 1862, when enslaved and free black people all around the country gathered together, mostly in secret, in order to sing and to pray as they awaited the report that Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which said that enslaved people shall be then, thenceforward and forever free, which had been written a few months earlier, had taken effect. And that night was called a watch night or Freedom's Eve. And still to this day, there are many in the Black community and many friends and allies, too, who gather together on New Year's Eve for a watch night or a night of freedom's eve to mark this moment. Frederick Douglass, earlier in the day, proclaimed the following. He said, it is a day for poetry and song. Shir Chadash, a new song, he said. These cloudless skies, this balmy air, this brilliant sunshine, are in harmony with the glorious morning of liberty that is about to dawn on us. But January 1st, 1862 was not yet the glorious morning of liberty for all people. First of all, as we now know, it freed only enslaved people who were in Confederate states, those states that were at war against the Union. And second of all, it freed only those whose towns and neighborhoods were liberated by the Union armies. Juneteenth, the day that we mark this weekend, was that day in 1865, two and a half years later, when Union Major General Gordon Granger and his predominantly black troops from the Union Army delivered word of the Emancipation Proclamation to Galveston, Texas, The westernmost point there's so much of this story that many of us have never been told there's so much of this story that we did not learn in school or that explicitly counters what we actually were taught in school we weren't taught most of us about the complicated legacy of abraham lincoln whose primary interest in emancipating enslaved people was winning the war, not winning their freedom. We weren't taught about the critical role of Black Union soldiers in actually achieving that liberation. We were not taught that the enslaved people of Galveston actually knew two and a half years before their own emancipation that the war was over and that they were supposed to be free but then were held against their will nevertheless. Can you imagine those two and a half years? As one black historian recently wrote, we knew we were free, but they had the guns. For all of that untold history, something absolutely remarkable, almost unimaginable happened this week. This week, the law was passed establishing Juneteenth, the 19th of the month of June as a federal holiday commemorating the end of slavery in the United States of America and many people now we can celebrate for sure. Many people now are noting immediately the painful irony that this happened at precisely the moment when the discourse around slavery and the history of racism in America has become a political and cultural fault line in which attempts are being made in state houses now across the country to hide and to bury the very history that juneteenth comes to teach us in which banning and regulating curricula that teach the history of slavery in america and how its legacy persists in systemic racism today is happening all across this country 21 states have already introduced bills to restrict discussions of racism in the classroom. In five states, those bills have already become law. In other words, Juneteenth now becomes a national holiday precisely at the moment that teachers are banned from teaching about why. Precisely at the moment when voting rights are under unprecedented attack in this country, targeting with surgical precision, as one federal judge wrote, black voters. Precisely at the time in which we are acutely aware of violence against black people too often carried out by law enforcement in this country. And all of this leaves many people worried this week that this is a meaningless symbolic gesture when what we really need in our country is real hard conversations when what we really need is concerted institutional reform, when what we really need is policy change that will allow for the absolute equality that was promised in General Order Number Three that was delivered in Galveston, Texas that day. And nevertheless, this is still a moment for celebration because when signing the bill into law this week, the President of the United States called Juneteenth a day of profound weight and profound power, an opportunity for us to remember the moral stain, the terrible toll that slavery took on this country and continues to. He said, great nations don't ignore their most painful moments, they embrace them. Critics of the president have said that great nations don't commemorate their moral stains. We commemorate our victories. And so you see that right now at this moment, we are standing at the intersection of a lively dispute in this country between the way that we hold the past, the stories that we tell, how healing might be possible and who gets to decide. So tonight I wanna ask you to consider the following. Icar, as many of you know, was born in Melissa and Adam's living room. And I learned early on the story of their beautiful house, which goes something like this. They'll correct me afterwards if I get some of the details wrong. Shortly after buying their new house in Santa Monica, they learned that their house had mold in it. And they learned that it was not something that they could take care of in any way other than demolishing the home and entirely rebuilding. In the second or third year of Ikar, over in the JCC, I shared what has become for me over the years really a foundational text. And some of you who are old timers here have heard me preach this text many times. This text comes from the Slonim Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Noach Berzavsky, from a text called Nitivot Shalom, He himself is a survivor of the Slonim Hasidic dynasty, which was essentially wiped out in the Holocaust. He teaches that a person who builds a home on a rotten foundation will inevitably confront cracks in the walls and breaches in the structure of that home. And the homeowner will work furiously to try to paint over those cracks, but then new cracks will appear. So the homeowner will try to plaster over those cracks, desperate to maintain the appearance of normalcy. At some points though, the owner realizes that this house is in danger of complete collapse. And the only solution is to uproot the home, to clean out the rotten foundation and build something that is truly strong and healthy. Now, when I first learned this text as a very young rabbi, I took this rabbi at his word. He writes in the text that this is a metaphor for the Bait Ruchani, for our spiritual homes, that we have to be willing to clean out the rotten foundations in our hearts if we're ever going to get healthy, that we have to be willing to do the real hard work of tshuva, of personal transformation, of Khashbona nefesh, of accounting of the soul. We have to be able to ask for forgiveness and move toward healing. But it became increasingly clear to me over the last many years that this metaphor is not only about our souls, but it is about the soul of our Jewish community. It is about the soul of the state of Israel. And it's very much about the soul of this country, the soul of our society. I recognize now that there is a pain point in uprooting and cleaning and rebuilding and Adam and Melissa, I imagine it must have been devastating for you to move into your brand new house only to realize just how much work had to be done in order for it to be hospitable for you and for your two young children at the time. And I imagine that Barbara, if you're here with us, Melissa's mother and Adam's mother-in-law must have been challenging having Adam live with you for two or three years while that work was happening. There's pain in uprooting and cleaning and rebuilding. But now you've built a house together and it's a house built on love and it's beautiful and it's solid and it's strong and it was the birthplace of our community and that was not an accident. But admitting that we have a problem, acknowledging that there's so much work to be done, doesn't that leave us really vulnerable? Well, there's a Midrash that's associated with this week's parsha, with parashat Chukat, that comes from Chukat, that comes from Bami bar that says the following. It says that there are three things, shlusha sh'amar Moshe lifnei that Moses said to the Holy One, V'amar limadatani, I have learned from you. There are three things that Moses taught God and God responded, you've really taught me a lesson. You have taught me something. By your life, God says. I will nullify my old way and now I will follow your way. And the rabbis tell three different stories to show moments when moses had more insight and clarity than god god self and when you read this text you have to imagine the audacity of the rabbis telling a story like that god made mistakes and god was able to repair based on the words of moses some people imagine their political or their religious leaders as flawless our rabbis even imagine god as fallible Even God can learn and can grow. In other words, growth is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of vitality. And I urge us tonight, I urge us to hold that divine humility as we engage in these critical conversations. I urge us to remember that this is about more than how we tell the stories of our past. It's about how and if we allow ourselves to rebuild the very foundation of this place that we call home. How and if we allow ourselves to imagine a different kind of future. Parshat Hukat is extraordinary because in this one parsha, 38 years pass without a word between the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, and I'm struck by it every single year. The story picks up and tells us that the people now are at the cusp of the promised land. And they're strategizing about what direction they're gonna come in from, how will they enter. You know, we take this for granted, this lacuna of of 38 years, our ancestors who were forced to take an 11 day walk over the course of, of 40 years total. But we know that the whole generation, the whole generation that left Egypt had to die before their descendants were able to enter the land. This is absolutely devastating. But they simply weren't able to accommodate a new way of thinking. They were stuck in the past. They were afraid of the vulnerability that would come with change. I really pray tonight that we are not like that generation. May we be able to proclaim, I have learned something. Something different from what I was taught in school growing up. Something different from many of the books that I have read and many of the narratives that I've been told. Something unsettling, something uncomfortable, even something painful, something that demands more of me as a citizen of this country. But as James Baldwin proclaimed at Cambridge University in 1965, we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, if we are not able to overcome the histories, the narratives that we've been taught and allow ourselves to see a different kind of future, we will not be able to be a part of the new identity that's being forged in this country in this moment. Clearly, Frederick Douglass was about a century and a half ahead of his time. But here we are now, it's Juneteenth, 2021. I pray that today might be a day for poetry and a day for song, a new song. I pray that these cloudless skies, this balmy air, and this brilliant sunshine are in harmony with the glorious morning of liberty that is about to dawn upon us all. Amen, Shabbat Shalom. You have in your hands, I hope, a Kaddish for Black Lives. This was written by, or spearheaded by one of our board members, Eric Green. And it's being read in communities all around the country on this night. And so I invite you to take it and read it with us. Creator of all life, source of compassion, your breath remains the source of our spirit, even as too many of us cry out that we cannot. Breathe. Lovingly created in your image, the color of our bodies has imperiled our lives. Black lives are commodified yet devalued, imitated but feared, exhibited but not seen. Black lives have been pursued by hatred, abandoned by indifference and betrayed by complacency. Black lives have been lost to the violence of the vigilante, the cruelty of the marketplace, and the silence of the comfortable. We understand that black lives are sacred, inherently valuable and irreplaceable. We know that to oppose the body of of the human is to break the heart of the divine. We yearn for the day when the bent will stand straight. We pray that the hearts of our country will soften to the pain endured for centuries. We will do the work to bind up the wounds, to heal the shattered hearts, to break the yoke of oppression. As the beauty of the heavens is revealed to us each day, may each day reveal to us the beauty of our common humanity. Amen. Amen. Ay, 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 ay.